Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. My guest today, KT McFarland, former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Trump. And KT, welcome to Hemmer Time. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, you've been out in the wilderness for a while, <laughs> and now you're clawing your way back, and you have a brand new oh, book. Oh, Bill, you don't want to say clawing my way back, uh, but I am coming back. Okay, coming back. <laughs> I, I will restate the uh, previous observation. You have a brand new book that's due out in January. It's called Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. You had a front row seat to the early days of this White House. Yes. How do you look back on that period now? I look back having taken a year and a half off to think about it and try to figure out what had happened to the country, what had happened to me, what happens next. And I came to the conclusion that what this is all about is not just the establishment versus Trump. That's part of it. Um, the establishment would love you to think that it's all about, gee, it's all Trump. And the minute Trump's gone, things will go back to normal. And frankly, Trump wants you to think it's all about him, too. But it isn't. It's bigger than Trump. I think what it is, is the establishment is stuck. They're old leaders. They're tired old leaders, tired old ideas. And for the last, say, 10 or 15 years, they've really failed the American people. They've been in two foreign wars that we couldn't win. They've expended trillions that we could have used to rebuild the country and rebuild the infrastructure and the school system. But most important, they failed the working class Americans. I mean, I grew up in a working class family and I live the American dream. And I don't think it's there for the people who were born 10, 15 years ago and, and the future for their children. So I think and I put that firmly on the foot of the establishment. So I think that's part of it. And the other part of it is as Trump represents all those people, particularly the working class around the country, that the establishment says, we don't want anything to do with you, and because they want to cling to power. And I think that's the story of America, is that that Americans, by their very nature, are a dynamic people. We have immigration, we have geographic changes, demographic changes, you know, economic changes, industrial changes, and we keep evolving and recreating ourselves. But government, by its very nature, is stuck. It's status quo, doesn't want anything to change, and doesn't want anybody else to be mm. in charge. And so I think what we're having now is a battle between Donald Trump and the Washington establishment, Trump representing the majority of the American people. Well, so that's what the book is about, yeah. clearly. But it's also about my personal experiences. What what was it like during the transition? Why did I abandon the Republican establishment? And then particularly my days in the White House, the early chaotic days of the Trump administration, um, General Flynn's firing, uh, my experiences from the inside of the Mueller investigation, and then, as I said, mm -hmm. my finally my conclusion that, in fact, this is an okay thing that America's going through. You believe some people think it's okay. I believe it's a miserable period. I think that we're going through a revolutionary so, period. Why did you just end your statement? Because I actually am quite optimistic about where this all goes. 
I think America recreates itself when it goes through these political revolutions every generation or so. And that's what we're going through now. It's a war between a political war between the American people and the establishment, the political establishment, the Washington establishment, the ruling class. And we have these. We've had them from the very beginning. And at the end of them all, we actually come out a recreated nation. And that is what lies, I think, at the heart of American greatness and exceptionalism. Every other country in the history of the world, rise, shine, inevitably declines. America, rise, shine. We decline for a little while, and then we come back again. We recreate ourselves, not just as individuals in the sense of the American dream and the land of opportunity, but as a nation, as a society. Mm. I remember in the very early days I was in the West Wing of this administration. I was working on some interviews and trying to attract more guests to our program. It was a new administration. I think they were still hanging pictures on the wall. (laughs) I remember it quite clearly sitting on the couch in Kellyanne Conway's office waiting for her to arrive. I'm not quite sure I should have been there. Um, In that particular moment, uh, there's a waiting room outside where you can sit as well. And I remember meeting with you and General Michael Flynn. Yes. And we were talking about the hotspots around the world. And and the two of you wanted to know how is this administration being perceived on the outside? Mm Mm-hmm. And I was frank with you in the following way. I I viewed it as chaotic. And I think I likened it to January of 1993 when Bill Clinton was – going through the beginning stages of his first term because there was a lot of chaos for Clinton when he came to the White House as well. You think about that time, KT, mm-hmm. and what comes to your mind well, and what you recall specifically? It was chaotic, and I think inten- and intentionally so. Trump had never been to Washington. I mean, when I sat down during my interview with President Trump, and I'm going to shamelessly plug my new book Mm -hmm. because I talk about it in great detail. Uh, When I sat down in Trump Tower, prior to my meeting with President-elect Trump, I sat down with Reince Priebus and Eric Trump, who had brought me into the campaign and to the administration. And I said, well, you know, I hear here's the jobs you're thinking of me for and here's how it goes. And I realized none of them had been in the White House. I realized that they didn't even know the floor plan of the West Wing. And then it occurred to me that not only had had none of these people worked in, in an administration or in the White House, but half of them probably, in fact, most of them had probably never even set foot in the White House. They probably hadn't even gone on a tour of the White House. And so I sat down with Reince Priebus and his yellow legal pad, and I drew out a floor plan of the West Wing. And said, okay, so these offices rarely change over time, and the functions of the people who sit in them rarely change. Here's the chief of staff. Here's what his job is. Here's the national security advisor. Here's what his job is. Before long, a few other people in Trump Tower transition, including General Flynn, came into my office, and I said something which I think they were quite shocked at. I said, the national security advisor is somebody who you think of as the aide to the president, like a staff aide, like it's been on the campaign, where the national security advisor helps the president write his speeches, talks to him about hotspots in the world, helps him deal with the crisis of the day. But the national security council has a very different and, in fact, far more important function, which is it brings together all of the agencies of government – State Department, Defense Department, Treasury, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Intelligence Community, and it brings them together in the Situation Room once or twice a week, and they thrash out policies. And that's how policies get 
reviewed, assessed, and recommendations go to the president. They were shocked. And so I realized that for me, the most important thing I could do as the one person who had worked in the White House, who had spent seven years in the West Wing working for Dr. Henry Kissinger in the Nixon and Ford administrations and then again in the Reagan administration, was to help them through those first couple of weeks because what happens to America is every country in the world knows we're most vulnerable as we change administrations. Nobody else does it like we do, where you have a president and all of his top advisors and cabinet officers are new And every country knows that's the moment we're going to test America. That's the moment we're going to take advantage of them before they even know, you know, where the Xerox machine is. And that's what my fear was at the beginning, that we would have a crisis, say, with North Korea Mm -hmm. on day one. And the problem is that at 1201 on Inauguration Day, the new president is responsible for the defense and security of the American people before anybody's figured out what's going on. Wow, you said a lot there. Um, let me backtrack a little bit here. I remember the day you showed me your office, may I say, it was on the smaller side. <laughs> and you opened a door and you said, Bill, look at this. This was here when I worked for Richard Nixon. You remember that moment? I do. What were you showing me? <laughs> okay, so I showed you the fuse box. It's an old-fashioned fuse box. Who knows why it's still in the West Wing of the White House, much less in the National Security Advisor's office. And I showed it to you because on a fuse box, there's usually something written right next to each fuse, you know, for what the fuse controls. And the fuse box said Henry Kissinger's bathroom was the fuse box. And we laughed because I said, I remember that fuse box in 1971 blowing that fuse. And so here it is. Nothing much changes in the White House, wow. including the fuse box. By still- the way, the <laughs> only thing that's changed, that's now the vice president's bathroom. Uh-huh. Does that fuse box still work? You know, I never had the guts <laughs> to try it, Bill. Time to go back. How long did you make it at the White House? Well, after three weeks, General Flynn was fired. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'd also describe this in great detail. Um, the new national security advisor wanted his own deputy. And so I was told I had to leave, at which point I said, come on, guys, I've held this joint together. And through crisis and three weeks ago, you were just begging me to stay because the place was collapsing. In any event, it took um, – General McMaster, almost five months to find a replacement for me. And I was very lucky in that I could stay at the National Security Council and do what I've just described to you, that I could have meetings, several meetings a week with all the different deputies at the agencies, and we could go through one by one the Obama administration foreign policies, match them up to what Trump had promised to do, and then reorient American foreign policy. And at the end of the day, I actually got along pretty well with General McMaster and the others, but um, KT, but that's you, why I left. Did you get a bad deal? Oh, sure. I got a totally bad deal. And Washington is, you know, it's, it's where no good deed goes unpunished. But even then, you know, it, it was a pretty bad deal. But that doesn't matter. I mean, for me, the important thing is that the Trump administration has thrived. And all the things they promised to do, reorient American foreign policy, turn to China as the major um, national security threat and in- issue of our time, get turn away from fruitless foreign wars, fix the economy, rewrite government regulations, have a tax cut, create jobs. All that stuff has been done. And I am very proud and honored to have been part of it. Well, did General Flynn get a bad deal? I think only time will tell. Um, and again, I do 
go into this in great detail. I probably shouldn't go a whole lot further right now. I will mm-hmm. go in a little bit further into that later. Why has he been so quiet? Well, he still has not been sentenced. Three years later. Three years later. He's How come? Well, initially, he pleaded guilty on December um, December 1st of 2017, so just within the first year of the administration, he pleaded guilty to perjury of lying to the FBI. And then since then, he cooperated with the Mueller investigation, which has long since been concluded, um, and yet the judge has not yet sentenced him. It's been delayed several times. He has a new lawyer, a very good lawyer. Her name is Sidney Powell, and she's built her career on taking cases where there's been an abuse of power by the Justice Department and getting the decisions of the Justice Department and the courts overruled, including some that she's taken to the Supreme Court. And that's why I think General Flynn, a lot of the issues around his um, his guilty plea are being revisited. Was the Justice Department, did they abuse their power? In fact, the Inspector General report which is coming out supposedly right after Thanksgiving, will address that very issue. And more on that in the book, too. You bet. Uh, Katie McFarland, former Deputy National Security Advisor, it's a real honor to be able to speak to you about these events, going back, looking back in time, and also uh, in a a moment here, we'll get a glimpse as to what concerns you about the future. How many times have you been subpoenaed in the last three years? I've kind of lost track. (laughs) Um, Let me think. I've just sort of lost track. Um, Several times by Mueller, by various congressional committees. And here's the thing about that that nobody ever talks about. The congressional committees know, as does any special prosecutor, that you, the individual, you have to lawyer up. You have to get top-notch lawyers. You have to recreate your records, which they control, whether you receive them or not. And they know that people will run legal bills of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Michael Mm -hmm. Flynn's legal bill, from what I've read in the papers, is over $3 million. He doesn't have $3 million. So I think that the congressional committees in this highly partisan political environment realize that they can subpoena right, left, and center individuals and drive them into bankruptcy. Someone told me each subpoena cost me, and this is a quote, $50,000. Sound right? Um, I would say, yeah, depending wow. upon, I mean, and even higher in some cases. Wow. I mean, you know, I think most of the people who are the headline names are probably several million dollars hmm. in debt for that. And the government doesn't reimburse you and your insurance plan doesn't pay you back. You're on your own. You are on your mm-hmm. own. And I know some people uh, who have in the past probably considered, I mean, I thought about it, pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit in order to get off the legal fees. Really? Yeah, I think that's what's happened just in to some cases. Just get the case over with. Just to get it over with, with and just to get out of there and get on with your life. It's a real abuse of power by the system, and that's one of the reasons I'm going to be very active in the next year or two. I think what's happened is I don't believe in a deep state. I don't think it's that deep. I think it's an administrative state that abuses its power to try to go after people who it doesn't agree with or or people that it feels are a threat to its existence. You say that you're going to talk more about it. I'm going to talk more about it. In, I've coming, got book. In, in what sense? Well, I want to speak out. I want to go around the country and say that I think it's gotten to the point where the U.S. government, the administrative state, thinks that it runs the country. There was no better example of this in watching the impeachment hearings where there were people on the NSC staff, several of whom I knew quite well, 
and them saying, well, the president didn't follow the ex- interagency government uh, policy towards Ukraine. And I, th- I scratched my head and I thought, really? Guess who's supposed to be elected by the American people to set American foreign policy? Not a bunch of nameless bureaucrats. Mm. You say you don't call it the deep state. You call it the administrative yeah. state. How are we to understand that? Who live outside of Washington? State, okay, so a deep state, to my mind anyway, means sort of a cabal of people who meet secretly in some basement room and, and plot you know, a coup or an insurrection. I think it's much more broadly based than that, that the administrative state, the professional bureaucrats, the people who look at a president and say, ah, presidents come, presidents go, I'll be here forever, I can't be fired from my job, and the professional bureaucracy, which gets bigger and bigger. It gets more expensive. They get automatic pay raises and terrific health care and retirement plans. They think they run the country. And according to the Constitution, it's not them. It's we the people. Now, would you describe some of that as harassment? I ask you because the president has called it presidential harassment. Do you believe that employees of the government are victims of the same level of abuse the way you describe it? Well, not of the level that Donald Trump – I mean no president in the history of the country has been subjected to this kind of harassment and abuse and criticism by the media, by the instruments of permanent government. But do I think it's harassment? Look, Bill, I am really happy that the Justice Department has these tools at its ready – Uh, Because we need those tools to go after terrorists, to go after hardened criminals or mass murderers. But it's when in a political environment like we have in Washington today where everybody's at everybody's throats that those powers can be used and turned against political opponents. That's what I find chilling. Mm. How long do you believe in hindsight? How long did it take the administration to get up to speed if you're thinking about days of chaos early on? couple of months. I think it was, yeah, I would say a couple of months. And that's but, but, normal. I mean, but you, just, would, you would admit there's a learning curve to all bet. of this, especially for those who are coming from outside the government. Yeah. And that's why the American people elected different people. They looked at the current crowd, whether it was the legacy candidate, Jeb Bush, or the legacy candidate, Hillary Clinton, and said, these guys aren't doing it for me anymore. We want new people, new ideas, fresh blood. Let me run through a few more things. John Bolton, uh, do you believe that he will testify? What is your feeling about his future? Well, I have no particular insight into John Bolton, although I've known him for years. I don't always agree with his foreign policy. He's more of a um, a neocon, somebody who was very pro the wars in the Middle East. I, I thought that we spent too much time, too much money, and too much American blood mm. and treasure. Did, did you believe that before you went to work for Trump? Yes. I've been saying it for years. Yeah, I think we've spent too much American blood and treasure propping up leaders who don't like us in countries that don't matter. Mm. You mentioned the impeachment hearings of Mm. the last couple of weeks. Fiona Hill testified about a week ago in her opening statement. She mentioned your name. She did. She said you were the one of three people, General Flynn being number two. I can't remember the third. General Kellogg, who was the executive secretary. Who hired her. I actually hired Uh her. I recruited her. What did you like about her? Okay, so I've known Fiona Hill for years. I read her book about Putin and her other writings. Um, And she actually was the first person I consulted um, when President Obama imposed sanctions on the Russians during the uh, transition period. Fiona Hill, to my mind, is the best Putin watcher in the country. She's savvy. She sees through his acts. She really gets him. 
And what I had hoped during the transition was that when President-elect Trump had said on the campaign trail he wanted to have a better relationship with the Russians, he wanted to negotiate with Putin. I thought, well, if he's going to do that, I hope he can, that the person I wanted on the National Security Council to kind of help help him through it was the savviest Russia watcher and savviest Putin expert there was. And I also thought that if Trump was able to negotiate some kind of a detente, rapprochement, whatever you want with the Russians, that um, she would be a good uh, reality check Mm -hmm. on to make sure that we were getting a really good deal. She's tough. What did you think of her testimony or what did you think of the hearings in general? I thought the hearings were a total waste of time. I mean, you know, Look, look at what Trump does. Don't look at what he says. You know, when he says, he says, one week, I love Kim Jong-un. We send each other love letters. And then the next week, he calls him little rocket man. My rockets are bigger than your rockets. Trump looks at all this stuff as a means to an end. And the end, he has very clearly in sight. And so I look at what he did. He didn't do anything wrong. I mean, a little distasteful, but it wasn't anything wrong. And he never stopped the aid to Ukraine. He never did all the things that people have accused him the of hearsay that, well, they thought he meant to do. Come on. You want some real proof. But what I think about Fiona Hill's testimony, go look at everybody should read her opening statement because she said one thing that went over all of the congressmen's heads and all of the media's heads. She said the Russians have sought to dis, to sow dissent and division in the United States. That is their goal, to pit us against each other, not necessarily to elect this guy or that guy, but to get us fighting amongst ourselves so that the country becomes dysfunctional, so that we start doubting our elections and we start losing faith in our own institutions. That's what Putin's all about. It's payback time for him. The Cold War ended because the Soviet economy collapsed. The Soviet Union collapsed. He wants to collapse American democracy. So in that sense, mission accomplished. Look at the Mueller report of the past two years, the way it's been debated in in the media every day for two plus years. You know, I've worked in Washington off and on for four presidents, and there's only there's a whole lot of hot air in Washington everywhere, uh, particularly on Capitol Hill. But there's not a lot of oxygen and so when the oxygen is getting consumed by faux hearings and accusations and investigations where people run down one rabbit hole after another, guess what doesn't get done? The business of the nation. We have a very good treaty, an economic treaty with Russia, with Canada and the United States and Mexico. It's just sitting there on the House of Representatives floor. If they'd only act on it, we could have a new treaty agreement. It would mean jobs for Americans, prosperity for Americans. And yet, what are the House Democrats doing? They're just so busy trying to find every little crime that possibly might have been committed. Why? I think it's for their own selfish reasons. It gets them on airtime. It gets them on your show. But just just back to your statement about what Fiona Hill said, and I remember listening to her and I made a note of it, and I said, Putin's winning in this argument because we're still talking about all this stuff three years down the road. Maybe not Moscow specifically, but Kiev now, et cetera, Mm. with Ukraine. To that point, he has won that public debate. Yes or no? Absolutely. And you were probably the only journalist who picked up on that. This is Putin's dream to have everybody fighting with themselves in America. And so nobody is actually paying attention to the nation's business. Somebody's got to call the whistle and call it to a stop. And we'll see when that happens. Few more questions. You said, watch what Trump does and not what he says. Yeah. Explain. Well, I mean, all the things that he supposedly did with Ukraine, with Russia, with whatever, he didn't 
do them. He may have thought about it. He may have talked about it. He may have, out of frustration, mentioned it. Or he may have thought, well, maybe I can get a little bit more out of this. But he doesn't do bad things. I mean, in fact, so the whole Russia hoax, we spent two years with people on the networks saying that Trump is a Russian agent or former intelligence officials, the most senior intelligence officials of the Obama administration, saying that he was an instrument of Putin and of the Russian state. Well, it turns out that it was all just a lot of hot air. And so I, I look at that and think, well, we've really been wasting our time. And we have been fighting amongst ourselves. And it is Putin's greatest dream. When you, um, he often talks about, um, he describes it, um, I'll give the shorthand version. Hey, we won the election. We gathered our team together. We all went to Washington and we were filled with great optimism. And then Washington did what Washington does and they popped the air out of our optimistic balloon. Mm-hmm. And now everybody's faced, faced with lawyer bills, et cetera. Um, you've heard him talk about that. Yeah, right? sure. Were you one of those people yeah, filled sure. with optimism? Absolutely. I thought that the, that the Trump administration was going to do what Reagan did which is fix the economy, stand up to China, redirect American foreign policy, rebuild the military. And I think he's done as much as he possibly could under extraordinary circumstances of opposition. And when people say, oh, he's a Russian agent, he's this, he's that, what has he done? He's he's actually increased sanctions on Russia. He's put more pressure on Russia. What about Ukraine? He hasn't abandoned Ukraine. He's done a whole lot more than Obama ever did with Ukraine. So watch what he does, not what he says, and certainly don't watch what his critics say. Which foreign policy matter today concerns you the most? Oh, without a doubt, China. Um, While we were so consumed by a Middle East mindset, we really lost track of what China was doing. And I think the technology transfer, what's called forced technology transfer or technology transfer theft. You know, American companies are really great at research and development and innovation and creativity. And the Chinese aren't. So we also spend a lot of money doing stuff like that. The Chinese don't. And so what they've done is they've either stolen our technology or they forced American companies wanting to do business in China have forced those companies to turn over that technology. And as a result, um, I think the Chinese have taken advantage of the situation and mm. it's time to recalibrate and good for Trump. You just spent two weeks in China. I did. And what did you come away with? Um, I guess I came away not um, with any change in what I think the Chinese are doing or what their intentions of it are. What I came away with, though, is probably a better appreciation for how dire things are in the Chinese countryside. You know, when anybody, any American or expert talks about China, they talk about Beijing and Shanghai and a new city a week and superstructure and bullet trains. And what they don't realize is that Um, A good third to a quarter of the population of China remains in the most abject subsistence um, poverty. And the other thing I found, which was stunning, is that we look at Hong Kong and say, these are freedom fighters. These people are are demonstrating for their their rights, and they do have rights, to decide their own fate. And the Chinese in China, the Chinese state media has covered this issue of Hong Kong as if the Hong Kong demonstrators were criminals and violent – Hooligans, and so the, the very different attitude inside the su- China. The suggestion is that Beijing's got to keep a close eye on it because the demonstrators in Hong Kong could come to their streets very soon. Do you think they will? No, I think it's already too clamped down, and I think the social 
um, point system which the Chinese have instituted, which they watch every Chinese citizen every minute of every day all the time, and they know who's even lifting an eyebrow in the wrong direction. Wow. I think it's too close for that. I think the greatest threat to China with Hong Kong is an economic one. Mm. It's great to lean on your knowledge. The new book is called Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People, and you've been listening to KT McFarland former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Trump. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Phil. She is not clawing back. She is coming back. KT, (laughs) great to see you. Thank you, Phil. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time.